Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Welcome to a special edition of The Practice Podcast. This episode is a recording of a panel discussion from Bast Amron's third annual Business Advantage Forum, which took place on November 13th, 2020. The forum is a learning event we host and underwrite each year with all proceeds donated to a charitable organization. This panel is called Deeds Not Words, Making Ethnic Diversity in Your Business a Reality, Not Just a Buzzword. If you enjoy this, check out the other panels on this podcast and please join us for our next forum. You can find information on our website at bastamron.com. I'm excited to be able to introduce our first panel, which is called Deeds, Not Words, Making Ethnic Diversity in Your Business a Reality, Not Just a Buzzword. And this is a super impressive panel. I had a hard time actually shortening their bios because they're just so impressive, but I'm going to do my best. First, we have David Duckenfield. He's a president and partner at Balsera Communications. David melts his background as a senior public affairs official in the Obama administration with his experience communicating complex policy issues to multicultural audiences. He handles crisis management and communications issues for national and international clients and provides strategic counsel for client initiatives and business deals in diverse industries and nonprofit sectors. As a former diplomat turned NBA executive early in his career, he helped launch NBA Latin America, where he successfully focused culture, language, sports, entertainment, and business. Next, we have Enoch Varner. Enoch is a partner at Kirkland & Ellis in their Houston office. His practice concentrates on mergers and acquisitions and private equity transactions with a focus on the energy sector. Enoch is a member of Kirkland's Diversity and Inclusion Committee, and he serves on the Houston Advisory Council for the Tarihi Justice Center. I probably mispronounced that, but sorry, which is a national charitable NGO that aims to protect immigrant women and girls fleeing gender-based violence and persecution. We'll put the website of that up in the chat. Prior to embarking on his career as an attorney, Enoch also served as a police officer for seven years, so he brings a unique perspective. Nicole Shelley Greenidge Pratico, if you have attended our forums in the past, you have seen her before, and we brought her back by popular demand. She is an executive director at Nicole Shelley Inc. She's become one of South Florida's most recognizable business icons, from producing signature events, seminars, and workshops to helping fundraise millions of dollars for various causes for public and private sector officials, institutions, and organizations. She is a project and business development through strategic events management, public relations, and marketing have made her Caribbean Today's top 10 success stories in South Florida, Brickle Magazine's best dressed professionals, one of Mercedes-Benz's Driven for Success professionals, and the U.S. Department of Commerce's Best Event Production Professionals. And finally, we have Arturo Nunez. He's the founder of AIE Creative, which provides immersive experiences to a highly curated selection of brands looking for unique ways to connect with diverse customers. Arturo was previously Chief Marketing Officer for Latin America at Apple responsible for marketing and communications and developer relations across all 38 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. 
Before that, he was vice president in global marketing for Nike Basketball, where he developed the campaigns and branding for LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Paul George. Before Nike, he spent seven years at the NBA, working his way to vice president and managing director of Latin America and the U.S. Hispanic market. Arturo has also held a variety of marketing roles for leading companies like Diageo, Colgate, Palmolive, and PepsiCo. He sits on the boards of the Miami Underline and the Playing for Change Foundation. So we have a super impressive panel today. I'm going to um, ask Maylin to put us on the screen. I'm going to remind all of our guests today to put your screen on speaker view. That's in the top right-hand corner. And we are going to get started with this panel. I'm super excited about this. Nicole, we don't see you and that's our loss. But if you're able to get your video working, go for it. So we're talking about ethnic diversity. And I had all all these, I found all these statistics about diversity. And I I really just, I I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this first question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Why is this so important? What are the benefits of a diverse workplace culture? Who wants to do this? Arturo, I see you. Took yourself off mute. Hey, Jeffrey, how are you today? Great. Thank you for having me on the panel. I think, uh, Jeffrey, you know, we spoke earlier in the week about just just being a business imperative for folks. I think that uh, for-profit organizations exist to maximize shareholder value. And I think that the more that you can reflect the values and understand the values of all of your customer base, that that's what true diversity is really about. And it just helps you be a better business. If I said to you, hey, I have a business idea and we think that one of the major markets for this business could be China. And I said to you, I have someone who knows how to do business in China, who's done business in China, who speaks the language, is connected to all the folks that we need to talk to. Wouldn't it be a mistake not to have that person on our team if we think that that's going to be an important market for us? I mean, I put it at its core essence, but it's as basic as that. And so when people are challenging corporations today, you know, these Fortune 500 corporations saying, why are there no people in your C-suite who look like, represent all of your customer base? It's literally just a fact of good business. So we have to demystify this idea that it's a nice to do or community type work. It's not. It's just good business. We all exist to maximize the shareholder, the value of our shareholders. And the way to do that is to have the most diverse group that we can to address the needs, concerns, issues, and challenges of all of our diverse customer bases. Yeah, Jeff, I'll hop in here if I can. And first, I'd just like to thank Jeff Bratton and Brian for doing this, right? This panel, this this topic is, you never know what you're going to get when you have a discussion like this. So there's there's an element of bravery that you guys are sort of demonstrating here in, in doing this. But what I'll add to what Arturo says is, is as he said, many businesses have, have recognized this as, as just good business. Many of the investors in businesses recognize this as well. And so, you know, I'll just share another perspective, which is the private equity perspective. I came to Kirkland from many years in private equity. And, you know, if you look around what's happening in private equity right now, and the reason I raised the point about private equity is that these are the people who are really looking to invest throughout the business spectrum, right? They're they're looking for startup companies. They're looking for medium-sized companies. They're doing leverage buyouts of huge companies. They're all looking for diversity. And by the way, private equity is among the least diverse diverse fields right now, but they recognize the business imperative that, that Arturo talked about. In addition, you have the investors in private equity funds who are demanding diversity as well. And so, for instance, 
I saw recently that Yale's head of the endowment, David Swinson, who sort of has long been a thought leader in the investment community, recently talked about essentially taking private equity firms to task for their lack of diversity and the lack of diversity in their portfolio investments and going forward requiring of them, them being these private equity firms, to report on their diversity statistics. So it's it's not just a a recognized business imperative like Arturo talked about. There are demands for this from many investor bases, from public shareholders to investors in private equity funds and across the investment spectrum. So it, it's not something you can escape sort of these days. Gotcha. David, you were going to say something? No, I'm just going to say uh, thanks again for having us here today. And uh, you're showing your bravery on Friday the 13th, as Glenn pointed out. Um, <laughs> and now I was going to just throw a quib in there. Like if, if, if you don't believe what we're saying, everybody believes what Harvard says. So, you know, Harvard came out with a study a few years ago saying that the more diverse companies earn 70% more in revenues at 90% of those companies had greater customer satisfaction. So the proof is definitely in the numbers. And also just in terms of if you're thinking of yourself as, as a company that faces issues, you know, problem solving and problem solving comes from creativity and, and you get much more creativity when you have a more diverse base of people that are tackling that issue. And that comes from a diversity of background, diversity of thought and, and ways of looking at things. So I think that all adds, adds up. Okay. Cool. All right. So you guys and Harvard have all convinced us. So, all right, let's just jump right into it. The struggle really is not, you know, I think there's a lot of small business out there that want to do this. How do we go about doing this? So I think, Jeffrey, really starts with intent, right? Like, do we really believe that this is a business imperative? And how do we light a fire on entire organizations to see it as such, right? David mentioned the fact that there are studies that show the better work of diverse teams, the greater profitability of companies that are truly diverse, uh, and speak to their entire marketplace in a voice that the marketplace understands and respects. Brands that create emotional connections with consumers do a better job. I've had the blessing and opportunity to work at a few brands that do a great job of communicating across culture. Super, super important, but it starts with intent. So when I spent time at Nike, I would see some situations, and I, I, we can get into this a, l- a little bit later, um, where there was a lack of diversity. And I would go talk to HR leaders, and they would say to me, well, we're trying, you know, because you hear that a lot. We're trying. Everybody's trying. It just, it's just hard to find talent. We're really trying hard. and It's really so difficult, whatever. So I was having a conversation one day with a woman in HR, and I was in Brazil at the time. And I was talking about the lack of diverse talent, both at the retail level and the marketing level at Nike to Brazil. And she was saying to me how it's so difficult to find entry-level Afro-Brazilian talent here. And we're having that conversation as we're walking through the lobby of a hotel. And I turned to my left, and I saw a reception desk at this hotel, Fazano Hotel in Rio. For those of you who know the beautiful city of Rio, you may know Fazano. And there's a woman behind the counter, and she's this black woman, and she has these dreadlocks. And, and I went over to her, and I said, excuse me, do you speak English? She said, I speak English fluently. I said, you speak Spanish as well? She says, I speak Spanish. Said, Obviously, you speak Portuguese. Yes, I do. I said, do you have a degree? She says, I do. I have a bachelor's degree. I said, listen, I've been looking now for two minutes in Brazil, and I found someone qualified for an entry-level job at retail or marketing at Nike. Where are you looking? I said to the HR person. And again, we have to get out of this idea that this is really hard work and so hard to do. As a matter of fact, when it comes to Nike, and again, I was, I was a product of that company, I told you know, the folks at HR, I didn't believe them at all. I said, Nike is the number one recruiter 
of global talent on the planet, bar none, in my opinion, because you can't have a 46-inch vertical live in Madagascar and not have Nike find you. You can't punch people in the face like Manny Pacquiao in the Philippines and not have Nike find, find you. You can't kick a ball like Neymar in Brazil and have not, Nike not find you. They're the best accruer of this talent. They're the best recruiter of this talent worldwide. But when the talent is professional talent, all of a sudden there's a stumbling block. Why not apply the same mechanism that helps you to find? Listen, Nike went looking for basketball players. When I ran Nike basketball, we had LeBron, Kobe, rest in peace, KD, Kyrie, and Paul George, five of the best on the planet, bar none. How did Nike do that? Well, Nike did that because they have an organization that's set up to do exactly that, to scour the world for the best, most talented people that play all of these sports and create relationships with them because they know that's going to help their storytelling. Well, if you could do that, you could do that with your employee base too, if you're really committed to doing it. So it starts with intent and then applying the things we already know towards this particular and important part of our business. I'm going to double down on, on, on Arturo's intentionality issue and from uh, perhaps more mundane, boring level. And from my experience in, in the army, and when you think of one of the most diverse workplaces in, in the United States, you might not think of the army or the armed forces, but it, it really is. And, and who, who had the longest track record of doing that is the army. And the reason that that is because President Truman in 1948 said, we're going to integrate the army from segregated units to integration. And it was a rough go of it. And I have crazy stories of my dad who was in a second lieutenant in the army in the 1950s getting asked all kinds of you know, racist questions from people he was in charge of, including if he had a tail under his uniform there. I mean, craziness. But he was their boss. He was a second lieutenant. The army was integrated and he moved up in the ranks. But it starts from the top and it comes with a demand from the head, from the CEO, from the general, from the president to say, this is where we're going to go and this is how we're going to do it. And then putting a roadmap in place to get there. and. In terms of roadmaps, and just so it's not daunting, I had a crazy thought, and this is going to show my age. For So for the younger folks, you're not going to know what I'm talking about. Maybe for some of the older folks, you will. I remember as a kid, when we used to go on these road trips, and this is before smartphones and internet and everything, and my dad used to always write to AAA to get the AAA guides, right? And so you would get in the mail a week before you were on your trip, these package of these maps, and they had mapped out the way. It's like, okay, you take this interstate and go there. You can stop here. You can go here and there. And it was just, I remember being so amazed. Like, wow, we got our whole trip planned out. And, and that was my dad's intent. And that was our roadmap. And that's how we we're going to follow it. We we're going to go through with that. So I think you have to have that same intentionality and that same sort of mindset and to make your workforce more diverse. And, and then, I mean, there's certain steps I want, maybe we can go through it later that I've sort of got in my head in terms of the interview process and the first step really. And, and maybe I'll just mention that right now. The first step is how do you select people and how do you mitigate bias and how do you get that pool and how do you recruit them? And that's the sort of first step on, on the journey. I'll let somebody else jump in. I don't want to dominate that all the time here. Dr. you were going to make a comment? Yeah, no, I think this is a great subject. I think it's probably one of the most important subjects that we could touch on, right? So I want to give some more context and again, concur with, with my colleague, David. I think it starts with intent, having a plan, putting a system together, cascading it from leadership down thinking outside of the box about how we go to recruit people and how do we retain them. It's not just recruiting either, because then you have to create an environment, right, that's welcoming, right, where people feel celebrated, not tolerated, so that they'll stay, right, because you're going to invest a lot of money in recruiting folks and bringing them in, right? You got to get them to stay. And so I'm going to give you a, an example of how some of this stuff works out in, in corporate America. And I'll give a specific example. I, I had mentioned Nike Brazil. So when I took over Nike Emerging Markets, I had 
Latin America, India, Africa, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Korea, the Philippines, et cetera. And it was, one of the, it was one of the most diverse teams I'd ever worked with because I was intentional about making sure we had people from all of those places because we were going to tell stories about athletic achievement in all those places. I wanted people that understood the culture in those places. And we did our best work and it drove the business and it was amazing. But in the process, I spent some time down at Nike Brazil and I realized I walked into an office one day to do a keynote to the Nike Brazil marketing team. And there were 60 white Brazilians in the room. And I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. I was like, you know, this is a Brazil, a country that by some estimates is 45 to 60% Afro-Brazilian, depending on whose estimates you believe. And we certainly had a number of athletes in our portfolio of athletes that were Afro-Brazilian, but we didn't have one Afro-Brazilian person on the entire team. I thought that was outrageous. So I went to management. I talked to the GM. I talked to the HR person, the same lady that walked through that lobby of that hotel with me, the Fasano in Rio. And I said, we got to do something about this. We need to have a marketing team that's reflective of the consumer base that we talk to. It needs to be reflective of our athletes. We need to create relationships with our athletes to do better storytelling with those athletes. So this is imperative in all kinds of ways. And I'm a senior leader at the organization. So I'm down here. I have the authority to say hey, that this needs to happen and have people listen to what I'm saying. Cool. So they heard me out. Arturo, absolutely. We're on it. Great. So I left. And I came back to Brazil three, four months later, and I looked at the team, and the team looked exactly the same. And I said, What's going on? I got the story about we're trying, we're trying to find people, you know, it's hard, complicated work, et cetera. I said, I said, I have an idea. We're talking about the marketing team, right? I said, why don't we just hire black people into marketing this year in marketing? Like only black people. Arturo, we can't do that. That would be racist. Like, how are you going to just have an edict that says you're only going to hire? But I said, wait, wait, wait. I know the numbers because I'm the marketing guy. So I know we're hiring five people into marketing. Three of those positions are entry-level positionings. Why couldn't we hire just black people? Because if you had five out of 60 people, it still wouldn't be diverse. What is so outrageous about hiring just black people? No, Arturo, we could never say something like that. That would be, I said, but you know, what's interesting is Nike Brazil's been around for more than a decade and that you found a way to hire only white people into marketing. That doesn't seem outrageous to you. But the idea that I'm suggesting we hire five black people, that seems outrageous to you. Very odd in light of the athletes we represent and the consumers we market to. So I go home. That conversation happens. They do not agree to say they're only hiring black people, but they're going to continue to look. Oh, that's great. Amazing. I go home. I happen to be watching PBS one night, and I'm sorry for the long story. I happen to be watching PBS one night, and I run across a story about this, this friar, this priest in Brazil, and his whole mandate, his mission, his purpose is to get Afro-Brazilian students from college into corporate America. I said, this is incredible. This must be an omen. What is this? Right? I, I see this guy on television. When I go back to Brazil a few months later, I find out where this guy is and I drag the HR person from Nike to Brazil and I sit down in this guy's office and I'm like, this is incredible. You get Afro-Brazilian students who have college degrees into entry-level jobs in corporate America and this woman is the head of HR for Nike to Brazil. She needs to find entry-level people and diverse candidates to be at Nike Brazil. Match made in heaven. My work here is over and I'm on my way. I'm gone. And I check in three months later. And I called the HR person. And you know, you know what she says to me? She says, oh, my God, Arturo, that organization, they are wonderful. We just sent all of their graduates free sneakers. I'm sorry, you what? Yeah, we just sent all the graduates. We love those guys. They're amazing. We just sent all the graduates free sneakers. What are you talking about? What, is free sneakers? what does that have to do with what we were trying to do? This is the reluctance, right? This is what you run into. These are the walls you encounter when there's not intent. There's not intent. But I didn't realize in my naivety, I thought I was trying to solve the problem. That's what business people do, solve problems. That's what leaders do, solve problems, right, for people. 
And I was being naive in that, no, there's a system there. And those jobs are coveted. They're marketing jobs at Nike in Brazil. And those jobs are often determined by who's friends with who, who knows who, what school you went to, who knows you from that school. This is how how we're doing this. So we claim that it's a meritocracy. We claim we only hired the best people. It's not. None of that is true. We got to blow all of that up and start over with intention if we really want to be diverse. I'm sorry for the long-windedness, but I thought it was an appropriate story. I, I I think it's a great story. And I guess what I would ask to the group is, and I'm hoping that Nicole can take herself off mute and hopefully we can hear from her at least. How does that, tra- it's a great story. Thank you. I mean, how do, how do we translate that though to smaller companies? This is like my company, we're not hiring five people in marketing in a particular period. So how do small businesses tackle like this kind of issue? Nicole, it looks like she turned herself off mute. Are you, are you there? Yes, I am. I have no idea why this video will not work. But anyway, moving on. Good morning, everyone. And thank you for having me yet again. Let's see if during this event, at some point, I can get this video to start working. But anyway, your question is? We're asking about uh, small businesses. How do we, how how do small businesses take this from intention to execution? Well, I think everything starts with what's in your DNA. And when I say DNA, your philosophy, you have to think about how is it that you really see diversity? Do you genuinely consider it something integral to the existence and the growth of your business? Or are you looking to check a box because everyone's talking about it and you don't want to appear insensitive or irrelevant, or just not participating in what's current. So at first would be to check your own philosophy. Second, as in, think about whether or not you genuinely feel this is right for your business, or this is necessary for the growth of your business. Because diversity, while it's very important, the level of diversity that you adopt will change depending on the kind of business you're in. I had given an example to a friend of mine recently that in our business, for example, having the model agency or talent management company rather, and the event management company, a lot of our clients tend to come from Europe and other parts, Latin America, et cetera, et cetera. And for a very long time, the emphasis was not on diversity. It was on hiring talent that was blonde haired and blue eyes. Because our clients felt like that was the look that was more canvas-like, if you will, non-controversial, neutral, but also aspirational. They felt in general for fashion, let's say fashion in particular, that that was the look that would appeal to the majority of their consumers So diversity, having an Asian model, a Latin model, a Caucasian model with brunettes or blonde hair, whatever it is, in a commercial or print ad didn't really make sense. They wanted something that would immediately speak of aspiration and luxury and wealth and would appeal to the masses, which in their mind was, would be a Caucasian model with blonde hair and blue eyes particularly. And so that worked for them. And that's what's been happening for the longest time, because in their mind, that's what it was. Now that we're having a different conversation, people are rethinking. And that's what I mean by checking your philosophy and your DNA. 
think about what has been ruling your subconscious in the past and think about the conversation now and whether or not you're willing to pivot, whether or not your business will benefit from this level of diversity. I didn't get a chance to speak earlier, but something I really wanted to mention was the fact that I am multilingual and the multilingual nature of my being is tantamount to me being, let's say, seven different people, because I speak seven different languages, in a business. And what that does to the mindset of the people in, within the environment of that business is it allows them to be more open, more inclusive, more understanding, more appreciative of different types of clients and vice versa. Clients looking in through our window to our office and seeing this level of diversity are also thinking, taking a second look and saying, you know what, maybe in the past, my mindset was that I only needed blonde hair and blue-eyed models to represent my brand. But now that this conversation is about diversity, now that I'm looking at this company that embraces all these different cultures, maybe I can adopt this same policy for my business. And this might just open up additional opportunities for the growth of my business and for the growth of my employees. Because you find when you are surrounded by a diverse and eclectic group of people, you also grow as a business. So in short, my formula or my suggested solution for this issue is to examine yourself and to start adopting ways that reflect your evolution if you have not yet evolved. And what that means, obviously, is to look at what level of diversity do you really need for your business in order to genuinely check the box. Do you need seven different cultures within your space? Maybe not. Maybe just two or three. But do what makes sense and what, when people look at you, will be able to say, hmm, I think they're living by the policy. They're walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Jeff, I'll just, I might add real quickly and be somewhat prescriptive here. Assuming that most people on this call are here because they've gotten to that intent portion, or at least they're interested and they're thinking like, I want to make a difference in my business. I want to be a more uh, multicultural. And as I mentioned earlier before, the first thing is like the talent pool, right? How do you get the talent pool? And so to get the talent pool, you got to sort of step outside of your comfort zone, step outside of the bubble, step outside what Arturo was referring to is like friends of friends. And by the way, we all do it, right? I've got my jobs through friends of friends or good friends. So how do you do that? So you're looking to hire an African-American executive and you don't have any African-Americans in your circle of friends and your friends don't. So how do you, how do you get there? So you have to think about it. Like, am I going to start going to HBCUs, you know, historically black colleges and universities? I'm going to look at black professional organizations, the national MBA. So look, intentionally go out and sort of find the pool of talent because it's out there, but it's just not in, within your, in your circles. And then, you know, let's say you get there. Once you get there, what do you do about it? Again, our term mentioned before, you have to retain, you know, because it's not just getting in. If they, if you get in a diverse pool and then all of a sudden they don't feel comfortable in your organization, even if it's like three people or five people, they'll leave, right? After a year, like, I'm out of here. I'm going to feel comfortable. They're, they don't understand me. So what kind of prescriptions or procedures you put in place to make sure they do feel comfortable? Do you have diversity and equity training that, that goes on and those kind of and conferences that, that people can attend to go to so that the environment itself is hospitable? And then you sort of go through the whole accountability and sustainability issue and sort of making sure like, you know, I said I was going to hit this goal, I'm going to hit it. Like my old boss used to say, if, if it's worth doing, it's worth keeping score, right? And then finally, I'd say, how do you extend that 
your firm, small or large, to sort of larger external partners, right? And how do you go to the, the diversity equity conferences that are out there? The ANA multicultural conference comes to mind for me. Again, the National Black uh, MBA conferences. How do you sort of make sure that your organization is a part of those larger groups as an attendee or set up a booth at these, depending on the size of your company? But there's a sort of ecosystem that you start to plug yourself into and apply to get the results that you're looking for. Wow, that's great advice. And I'm glad we've kind of transitioned from like the setting the intention to how do we actually start it. And I think if I could ask you, David, or any of the speakers, when after we roll off, maybe you can plug in some of the organizations that you mentioned, maybe plug them into the chat. I do see a couple of people commenting on the chat, and I think some of them are worth uh, mentioning. Peter Layton at a, at a great firm, Chapman Extrusion, said, set the expectation as an organizational firm culture a rock of your solid foundation for your business. It's people, process, and outcome products or services rendered. And then uh, Sherry Blanton said, plan and be intentional, set the metrics, and evaluate. And Lydia commented this great advice on being practical. And so I guess I I just want to stay on this topic of recruiting because I think it's such an important... It's so difficult to me. Like That's one of the most difficult things that we do is recruit good candidates and now we're being told, okay, you have to recruit a certain type of candidate, man. We want to recruit diverse candidates. So how do we, I guess David had some advice. Enoch, do you have any other uh, comments on sort of recruiting diverse? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I think it looks different for different types of organizations, right? So as, as David pointed out, in the military, the approach is kind of top down and it's very effective. For professional organizations like, and I'll, I'll submit that this is true for law firms, for banking firms, for accounting firms, consulting firms, most of the recruiting that those types of firms do is on campus, right? You're either recruiting on in undergraduate environments or at law schools or business schools. And I would submit that virtually all of those schools have affinity groups where people self-identify as diverse students. Those are all potential candidate pools for professional organizations looking to hire. Now, I realize that there are other types of businesses or other types of firms that do their recruiting differently, but like, this is a very practical suggestion for entry-level talent for a lot of different types of professional organizations. So that's sort of you know, your entry-level. You go out, and, and when you're on these campuses or when you're interfacing with these campuses, make a point of including these affinity groups in your recruiting efforts. And it, I don't think it takes that much, but, but letting them know of your interest, I think at, at the very least is a signal to the members of those groups that you are looking for people like them. And that's an important message. So that's sort of coming into the entry level of, of professional organizations. I think it's also true that, that executive search firms can be very effective at hiring specific types of talent or, or identifying specific types of talent for businesses as well, right? They do it all the time. And for a very small law firm or accounting firm, maybe that kind of approach doesn't make sense. But for medium to large size professional organizations, I think executive search firms can be very targeted in their efforts. And so if you're looking to fill a mid-level or senior role in your organization, that's another practical step to use. But I also want to take just a moment and touch on the point about retention, right? So David mentioned it, Arturo mentioned it. Retention is so important. One of the things that, and we grapple with it everywhere, right? 
at Kirkland, we on our diversity and inclusion committee, we've had a number of conversations about this lately, and it culminated in a renewed push to identify senior mentors and, and more than mentors, sponsors for our junior talent. And the, the reason we came to that decision was because every single diverse member of our diversity and inclusion committee could identify a senior sponsor, mentor or sponsor in our professional career who really guided us, made us feel welcomed, helped us along, and and really just affirmed for us that we belong there, right? That we can be successful where we are. Every one of us to a person was able to identify someone like that. And, And in most cases, it wasn't someone who looked like us. And that should be, I think, an encouraging message for anyone on here, right? It I mean, it's great if, you're, if your mentors and your sponsors have a lot in common with you, but they don't have to. They just have to be sincere in the effort to bring you along as a talent. So I completely uh, concur with Enoch on that. I think it's super, super important stuff. And, and to David's points as well about the strategy for recruitment and then obviously retention and retention. The reality is we all say that we're out here looking for the best candidates, right? So the best candidates are great. They're going to do great work for you. The downside of that is the best candidates are not going to tolerate being tolerated. <laughs> they want to be in an environment where they're welcome and celebrated. And they have options because they're the best, right? So if you don't make your environment a welcoming environment and they don't feel celebrated in the work that they do, and they don't feel like they can bring their authentic selves to the work that they do every day, those best people will find someplace else to go. And we all claim that we're looking for the best people. That's another conversation we can get into too because oftentimes when people tell you that they're having trouble finding the talent, they're creating some barriers themselves to finding that talent based on the idea of looking for only the best and the brightest. That's all another ruse that we can get into later. <laughs> oh, no, go ahead. Go. I want go ahead. Go with that, because I'm curious about that. I was going to make the comment that we have a hard time. And I kind of alluded to this. We have a hard time get finding good talent. And now you're telling me, look somewhere else, which actually I really like the idea, because these are all the places you mentioned are places that we haven't been looking. And I feel like I have an intention, but I haven't gotten out of my comfort zone. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's what you're saying. And we all yeah. go to where we go, our network, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We all go to our well and our network and our ecosystem to try to find things that we think are important to us. But to Enoch's point, I mean, I think we have to go beyond that, for number one. We have to be intentional with HBCUs, as David mentioned, or Black organizations, recruiters that focus specifically, Enoch mentioned, on uh, diverse candidates. And we have to set the groundwork, do the groundwork to make sure that these people, once they're hired, are going to have a pleasant experience being onboarded and then have mentors and guides that are going to help you to survive the experience. Every, every company has a culture. How do you learn the corporate culture? How do you learn to navigate the culture if you're not, you don't have a guide? Most times, people have guides. And so I want to talk about this thing about the best and the brightest, right? So again. It's nice to say, oh, at this company, you know, we have the luxury of being able to hire the best and the brightest folks. When you look at the leadership team, so let's let's look at let's look at a company that I again I use the Nike example a lot because I've spent eight years there in senior leadership. So there's 16 people that run Nike. There's 16 people that ostensibly are the leadership team, the CLT of Nike. On that leadership team, there's not one black person. There's not one person who speaks the Spanish language. There's not one person who speaks Mandarin or Cantonese. Right? Yet the second biggest market for Nike is China. So you look at that and you go, that doesn't sound like, right, maximizing shareholder value. This doesn't sound like. So you might say, well, wait a minute, Arturo, what if those 16 people are the best and the brightest people to do any of this stuff? 
The most recent CEO of the company, who's now the chairman of the company, is a guy named Mark Parker. Uh, he was CEO for a while. He led Nike through a great period of growth. He, I think a lot of people would say he did, he did a great job as CEO. Wasn't perfect. They say he did a great job as CEO. That guy was a designer at Nike. So that guy was farmed through Nike, right? So embedded with the culture. So you could technically argue that that guy is not the best and the brightest person to be the CEO of the company. They certainly could have chosen another CEO. They could have chosen an Ivy League guy. That's not who this guy is. He was a designer at Nike who ended up being the CEO of the company. So that's one example of that idea, right? So, and that's cool. Not to knock that person. I think he, again, shepherded Nike through a great period of growth. Okay. The second most coveted job in that 16-person group of people who run Nike is the head of sports marketing. Why is it a coveted job? Because this is the guy who decides whether it's Serena or it's LeBron or it's Kobe or we're doing Chinese athletes and this person has all those relationships and this person watches a lot of sports from really great seats. <laughs> this is why this is the most second, second most coveted job in all of Nike is the head of sports marketing. He's the marketing, uh, the sports marketing relationship guy connected to all the athletes, decides who gets to be one of these coveted Nike athletes, which is a privilege for any athlete in the world to be considered a Nike athlete. So you say, okay, well, that guy must be the best and the brightest, right? He's got the second most important job. I mean, as Nike's fortunes go in terms of getting these guys to tell stories about as the company goes, there's no more credible job than that. So you would say, Arturo, well, this guy's got to be Harvard, or he's got to be a sports marketing genius, or he's got to come from a history. No, 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 no. He's the son of the guy who did the job before. That's how we selected this guy into the job. Is this the best and the brightest? Is that what we're doing? Not a knock against the guy. I'm not knocking the guy. Has he executed the job? Well, I'm sure he has. The point is, we're not going out and getting the best and the brightest. We're making decisions that are not based on who the best and the brightest is. Listen, 40% of the white kids that go to Harvard go to Harvard because they're legacies, they're children of staff at Harvard, or they're athletes. Now, do any of these people, when they graduate from Harvard, tell you this about themselves? Or do they tell you, I'm one of the masters of the universe because I graduated from Harvard, the best school in the country, quote unquote? Is that the best and the brightest? So I think we have to relook at the way we think about best and brightest, too, right? In order to really find a, a diverse workforce. Yeah, so I... I guess what you're saying is what we perceive to be the best and the brightest is already is not the best and the brightest. And I, I guess another way of thinking about that is we're kind of, when we're recruiting and we see someone with Harvard on their resume, we are basically substituting Harvard's admission standards for our own. And we're basically saying, well, if they were good enough for them, they should be good enough for They've us. They've done all the vetting already for me. I'm good. You got the Harvard pedigree. And by the way, if I'm wrong, who can blame me? I heard the guy from Harvard. I could have been wrong, <laughs> right? But it's the cheap way out. Got yeah, it, yeah, David. no, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, it's all about stepping outside your comfort zone. And I just saw something put in there about implicit bias. And look, we all have it. I have it. You have it. We all have it. You know, we we all put people in the boxes. I think it's just the way our brains work, and we have to sort of be able to step outside of that. You know, I, I've had all kinds of funny experiences where people have just assumed things, right? And one uh, that, that comes to mind is in the last administration, when I worked in the State Department, a friend of mine came up to visit me and I took him to the executive dining room of the seventh floor of the State Department, like super luxury overlooking the, the National Mall is beautiful and nice. And he was a Cuban friend of mine, white Cuban friend of mine. He's like six two, just like you're and No one there knew he was Cuban, I guess. And so we're sitting there, we have a great lunch. And we at the end of the lunch, we put our credit cards down. 
my name is David Adams Duckenfield. His name is Roberto Sanchez. All right. And so I'll give him the credit card. The, the guy comes back. And who do you think he gave the Sanchez credit card to? Because I'm a POC. I'm a person of color. So that person assumed that since I was a person of color, I had to be the Hispanic dude. And that this tall white guy was the, the David Duckenfield, which is an English and British name. So anyway, so I'm just that just say that we have these implicit biases that we have to recognize. I think the first step is recognizing them and then try to to break through them and being comfortable with working with someone, recruiting someone who doesn't look like you, who might have dreadlocks, who does, you know might wear different clothes, who speaks differently, sort of sort of breaking through all that. And it, and it, for people here who are in small businesses, it's a lot. It's it is a lot tougher for you as an individual to do it because again, you don't have that top down. You don't have the corporate guy. You don't have the structures in place where they're, they're just going to do it right in the army. Like I said, they, you know, I, when I was in the army, I got thrown together with all kinds of crazy people. I had to do night recon courses with rednecks. I mean, rednecks from Georgia, but we were cool. Like we had to get through it together and we just had to do it. Right. And, but I learned a lot. I learned to appreciate the guy. He learned to appreciate me. I mean, but we we're thrown together. We we're forced together. Right. And in the case of smaller businesses, you, you don't have that. So it's going to be more incumbent on you to sort of dig deep and sort of, put those things aside. And that's where the affinity groups come in. That's where the sort of training comes in and taking those courses and going to those conferences. That's where that comes in to sort of put you in the right mindset and thought process of how to, how to break through that. The Please. importance of bias training, understanding the biases of our organization, the importance of having a, an organization free of microaggressions that many people of color experience in these organizations. I could write an entire book about the types of microaggressions that I've experienced throughout my time, micro and macro aggressions that I experienced throughout my time in America, what causes the best talent to leave, right? Because they have options and they're not going to put up. So we have to create environments that are going to nurture all of the people that succeed in our organization in order to win. You know, David mentioned the credit card. How many dinners have I been at where I'm the senior person in the place and they bring the credit card to someone else or they wait for someone else to speak to make the final decision? But I'm the VP. Why are you looking at my director? to make the final decision about what's going on. I'm the person that makes the decision. Or I give someone the credit card and they give the credit card back to someone else because I can't be the guy who's paying for the expensive fancy meal. Like this is endless. And again, to many people, it might sound like, oh man, why do people complain about why they Why are they so sensitive about these little things? I like to call it, these microaggressions are like Chinese water torture. Individually, unimportant. Together, it really will screw up your day. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm... Throughout my entire life, I've experienced this. I mean, I was on an airplane. I'm sitting in seat 4A, and the flight attendant comes over, and she goes, excuse me, sir, is that your seat? And I said, why, yes, it is my seat. She's like, do you have your ticket? I said, why, are you checking tickets? She's like, yeah, I'm checking tickets. I was like, cool, listen, start at 1A. When you get here to 4A, I'll show you my ticket. Oh, well, sir, why are you being offended? I'm just doing my job. No, 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 you're not doing your job. You know how I know you're not doing your job? I'm an executive platinum passenger on your airline and I fly these flights all the time. I spend 80% of my time on an airplane and no one asks me for my ticket when I sit down in my first class seat. That's how I know you're not doing your job. So if that's what you want to claim, that's cool with me. I have no pleasure. I'll show you my ticket. Start at 1A. When you get here, I'll show you mine. Oh, sir, I don't know why you have to be difficult. This is the life of a person of color. <laughs> right? Uh, Nicole, we finally have Nicole. Via video, I'm going to ask you to just jump Only, in. There's so much, there's so many Only, directions we can go. I love listening to all of you. I mean, so informative and so true. But you know what? I mean, there are a couple of things I want to say. Again, don't just check a box. 
Be mindful that, yes, it's true. You really shouldn't just choose someone because you know them. But there's a reason why we do that. There's a reason why we stay in that comfort level, because it's a way for us to somehow bypass the long-winded vetting process by having someone already tell you, you know what, I know this person very well. I can vouch for them. Now, Arturo, everyone else is absolutely correct. It's good to be able to step outside of that and interview someone that you have no connection to. But a lot of times the risk is higher. Again, it depends on your industry and what you do. I think it's a balance. You should strike a balance whereby you interview people that were recommended and you also interview people that came off the streets if they're qualified. At the end of the day, it's about the qualifications. So, I mean, strike a balance and be mindful not to just say, well, you know what? I'm no longer going to go through my my friends because I want to seem unbiased. Is it enough? I mean, is it appropriate or enough to say, okay, I'm looking for this position and you tell your recruiting people or your team that we are going to interview no less than this number of diverse people or people of color before we select someone? No, because I think that's checking the box again. I mean, let it be organic. Let it be real. And again, I'm going to stress, it depends on your industry. At the time when I started in fashion, the norm, as I said, was to hire models with blonde hair and blue eyes. Obviously, now we know that the, the consumer market is a lot more diverse. And being blonde hair and blue eyed doesn't mean that you're wealthy. Like it probably did or like they assumed it meant or did back then. Having a sense of diversity is more indicative of your wealth, your wealth of knowledge, your wealth of understanding, your wealth of of strength to cater to a more broad-based consumer market. But if you're in finance, it might be a different conversation. You might say that you're going to hire less minorities because the minorities that come through the door maybe don't have a book of business to bring to your firm that's strong enough. And you're not in the market for hand-holding. Like I was watching this old movie, I'm sure a lot of you have seen Boiler Room last night. And this guy went to this small firm because he said a JP Morgan wouldn't hire him because he doesn't come with a book of clients. In law, it might be the same thing too. Maybe you don't want to take the time to just hire somebody who's a minority just to check a box because you need to hire people that come with a certain minimum something. Make sense? Yeah. Unfortunately, we lost Arturo there. He had another call and we started a little later than anticipated. But yeah, thank you, Nicole, for that. Yeah, it it makes perfect sense to me. And I I think it's melds with our themes of getting out of our comfort zone. It's really more than just setting an intention. We have about five minutes left and I still have more questions for the panel. But I wanted to let people know that if you have questions, by all means, throw them in the chat. I'm seeing a, a lot of amazing comments and I love that people are really interested in this topic. I I think we could spend the whole day on this topic personally, but I want to hear from each of our panelists on the following. And I think from my perspective, business is hard and very rarely do we succeed on the first go at really anything, pitching new type of business or whatever it is, hiring, you know, oftentimes it go wrong. So how do we deal with with failure? I assume if I say I want to hire a more diverse population, I'm not going to find a person of color, maybe on my first go around. How do we deal with failure? Yeah, I, I, I'll jump in here because um, 
I was thinking about this when Arturo was talking. I, and I love his stories because they give shape, you know, to these sort of what can be kind of complex concepts or or concepts that are maybe foreign to some of us, but they really they really give shape to what what someone might be sharing as an experience that maybe we haven't experienced. And so we kind of wonder what that's like. His stories just sort of paint the picture for you. And I, I, so I just love, I love how he, Harry, how he shares those. What I would say is sincerity really matters, right? If you fail, keep trying, of course, but your sincerity in your effort will matter. And your sincerity will matter for retention. When you are successful, finally, at hiring, your sincerity will show through and, and that will impact your ability to retain. When you're interviewing, even if you're not able to win over the person that you wanted to hire, you may leave that person with an impression that he or she goes and shares with someone else. I mean, one of the things about your firm is that you've been able to attract and retain certain diverse groups that may not be reflective of you, but you created an environment probably out of your sincerity and out of the sincerity of your partners that made those people of various diverse groups, unlike you, feel welcome. And, and so sincerity matters, I think, is, is what I would yeah. lead. That's a great point. And I mentioned in one of our sessions, we have currently two openly gay lawyers and we had two others. And I never went out and tried to recruit gay or lesbian or other lawyers of that nature. And so I said, well, it just, just happened. And somebody pushed back on me and said, no, you created an environment where people that were different than you feel welcome. And maybe it's not intentionally, but I think you guys have all said, sometimes we have to do more than just make people feel welcome. We have to really get outside our comfort zone and look in new places. So David, we have two minutes left. Okay. So just quickly, I'll just say I was on a Zoom call last night with Jake Tapper and they were asking, it was for my, he went to my undergraduate school and he was like, any advice for kids? And he said, listen, failure, just embrace it and learn to deal with it and become resilient because, you know, life, they don't teach you this in college, but you're going to get rejected, rejected and have failures. How do you get up and, and move on? So that's, that's a huge thing. And in terms of how do you tackle this? I'd say purpose, pro- process and practice, right? in terms of tackling diversity in your workplace. And you know, I hate to keep going back to my, I don't know why I'm going back to my army days, but like top down, plan it out. And the army is like, okay, this is our plan. This is our goal. We're going to go for it. We're going to come up with a strategic plan. Then we're going to execute against it. And then we're going to like, before that, we're going to make sure we reconnoiter, figure it out. Then we're going to execute against it. And they're going to happen. And half the time it doesn't work. It's a disaster, right? They call it organized chaos. That's what they call the army, right? And then, Afterwards, you have the sort of after-action review. They call okay, okay. Let's take a step back. Let's look at it. Let's see what we did right. Let's see what we did wrong. How do we get back up and do it again and sort of keep moving forward? So, I mean, you can sort of apply that goal in terms of your your efforts to diversify. And then something we didn't talk about, we were supposed to talk about, is how do you communicate it out to a broader audience and how important it is to tell your stories, your successes, and your failures to a wider audience because it's going to be beneficial to you and to those who hear those stories as well. That's fantastic. Nicole, any final comments you want to add? I mean, you know what? I mean, I'll sound like a broken record. I always just say be tenacious. It's exactly what the two previous individuals said. I mean, be tenacious, be sincere, keep at it. People will see that you're genuine, that you're organic about what you do. And again, don't try to do this just because we're talking about it. Do it because it makes sense for you. If you're a Chinese company selling Chinese food, to people over 40, 
don't insist that you need to have an African-American in your business if you know that African-Americans are not eating Chinese food that has to do with, I don't know, people over 40 who have a specific medical condition. Like, don't just try to be diverse in a way that doesn't make sense. If you're in law, finance, fashion, interior design, whatever it is, food and beverage, hospitality, think about what really makes sense for the growth of your business, what really makes sense to foster a healthy growth environment for your employees, and what really makes sense and speaks to your clients. I told you, you know, a few days ago that, you know, at a a certain point, we had to supply a certain type of model to our clients. It didn't matter for us to have the conversation about diversity to our clients because for them, it just didn't speak to their client base. So we offered up what was demanded. And so now, obviously, it's a different conversation, but sometimes it makes sense to turn the tide and make a difference and start a movement. And other times it makes sense to just comply with what's already working and not try to reinvent the wheel. So examine your DNA and see what works and do that. Don't do it just because. I cannot thank these panelists enough. They are amazing, each one individually and together, really just terrific. I also would encourage everyone on that's attending to connect with our panelists, reach out to them on LinkedIn. In fact, the way I found David, I I know David, but I actually just read an article that he wrote on LinkedIn. And that's what encouraged me to contact him and ask him to speak on this panel. And I'm so grateful that he did that. And I just think there are so many other examples where we might find maybe what we're not looking for sometimes when we're we're looking somewhere else or looking in new places. And so connect with each other. I also, final comment, the comments in the chat room are just amazing. Please keep them coming. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you, our panelists. And I think that's the end of of this panel. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com.